And so the anointing of God has the ability to break every yoke of bondage, every chain. So we not only pray that those chains fall, but we pray that they're broken. In the name of Jesus, I thank you, Father God, that addictions are breaking, things that we keep doing over and over again, wish that we didn't. I thank you that the power to be free from that is available this morning. In the name of Jesus, I thank you, Father God, that power to break those chains. In Jesus' name, we thank you, we worship you, we honor you, Father God, oh, for who you are, what you do in our lives. And right now, I'm just going to say this. I said it first service, but it bears repeating. If you are dealing with something in your life and you keep doing it and you know you're not supposed to do it, I ask you this question. If it wasn't a sin, would you keep on doing it? And a lot of times the answer to that is yes, because the desire is still there. And we can be in service after service, prayer line after prayer line, but if in our hearts we still desire to do the very thing we know we shouldn't, we will never be free from it. And I'm reminded of a story. There was a prophet in the Bible, his name was Balaam. And the king of Moab at the time wanted Balaam to come and curse his enemies. And he was going to pay him a large sum of money to do it. And Balaam wanted to do it, but he knew that God was not okay with him doing that. And so he said, you know what, I would curse your enemies, but God won't let me. God's not going to let me do it. He threw God under the bus. The desire was all wrong. And so how many times are we caught up in our sin and we say, you know what, I, I would love to you know, do this thing, but the word of God says I can't, and God says I can't, and we're using it as a, as a, as a, 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 a form of bondage in and of itself, right? We need to get to the point where we say, you know what? I have a different desire now. So we pray this morning, Father God, that you would change our desires. We never, you can break the chain, but we have to walk out of it with a change of desire, a change of mindset. So we pray, Father God, you said in your word that you would give us the desires of our hearts. And that can be interpreted a few different ways, but the way that I would love to interpret this scripture and what I think it means is that you place new desires inside of our hearts. So I thank you, Father God, those who are struggling with something that they've been struggling with for years, this morning, I thank you that you're giving them new desires we pray right now for the desires to change in Jesus' name. No longer will we ask ourselves the question or, or battle with, you know, if, if it wasn't in the word of God, I think I'd still do it. No, our desire is changing right now, this morning, to be free from that bondage and walk free from this day forward. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Well, thank you for being here this morning. Before you sit down, you know, the snow has kind of calmed down, but when I woke up, it was a little dreary. It was a little like, mm, I think I should just go back to bed. But um, you know what I've realized is that no matter how cold it is, no matter how much it snows, no matter how windy it is, there is somebody, someplace, who is sleeping with their window open. That is me. Raise your hand if that's you too. <laughs> All right. You guys can uh, look at your neighbor and say, you're crazy. No, don't say that. But uh, just greet somebody and go ahead and sit down. You know, it's a scientific fact that your body temperature has to cool down by two degrees in order for you to go to sleep. So sleeping cold actually has its benefits. All right. So as John stated earlier, um, Pastor Mark and Tasha are not here. Um, hold on, I can't double task. Here we go. Pastor Mark and Tasha are not here. They're in Salt Lake City celebrating 30 years with that church. And that's a really big deal. The, the pastors of that church, their names are Pastor Craig and Sharon McCune. And they founded this church over 40 years ago. And it's so 
awesome. Like, we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't be doing what we're doing if it wasn't for the vision that God put in their hearts and for them to accomplish it. So they did that. They set it up. They established it. They passed the torch to Pastor Mark and Tasha. And then they went and started a new work in Salt Lake City. And that's been thriving for 30 years. So we're so thankful for people who obey the call of God on their lives. And I can say truthfully and honestly that our pastors do that and the pastors of Salt Lake City do that. So I'm so thankful to them. Why don't you just uh, give uh, honor where honor is due. Let's just, um, I know they're not here, but we're just gonna give an uh, applause to the pastors of uh, Salt Lake City and our pastors. We're just so thankful. (laughs) Hallelujah. All right, y'all. So Pastor Mark has done a wonderful job um, talking about the body. That's been the series that he's in. And now he's going to be moving to another series called Authority, all about the name, the word, and the blood of Jesus. And so I get the opportunity to fill the gap. And this might be called like a one-hit wonder, but I truly believe that it's going to set his message up and it ties into it. And so today we're going to be talking about redemption. And this uh, title of this is... That's cool, but that's what I'm talking about. Case closed, redeemed by the blood. I'm glad I'm not on camera. Oh, I am on camera. (laughs) I walk a lot. Um, Case closed, redeemed by the blood. We want to talk about redemption this morning. And if you'll allow me, I've got a lot to say. God's given me a lot to say. And some of it's out of this book, too. If you've never read this book, it's called The Blood and the Glory by Billy Brim. I encourage you to pick it up, read it. And your life's going to be blessed. A lot of profound revelations, some things I drew out of this book that I'm going to be teaching on this morning. Um, But again, we're talking about redemption. Lots of scriptures we're going to be going through. Um, And first service, we got about five minutes late. I'm going to try and do my best to keep keep on time. But uh, there's some things that I really want to share with you. So um, just stay put, lean in, and I believe God's going to bless you. All right? Ephesians. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Now turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'm going to read verse 18 and 19. It says this, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus is the lamb of God without blemish and without spot, and we were redeemed by his blood. Can I get an amen? If you don't agree with that, we need to start the very basics. That is doctrine. That is 101. All right? So those are two wonderful passages about redemption, and we're going to talk, spend some time on that today. It's important that we as believers have an understanding, at least a basic understanding, of this principle, Um, because if we don't understand this, we're going to be living significantly under what God has purchased for us. Like our life, it could be here, but without an understanding of revelation, you're living, or understanding of redemption, you're living here, and God paid for life to the overflow, to the fullest, to the utmost, right? God paid paid for life and life abundantly, Right? And part of that abundance is understanding and knowing what he has purchased for you. Right? Revelation 13.8 says that Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. So redemption was already thought of before we ever screwed up. Thank God in his goodness that he factored in our stupidity. Right? Thank the Lord. He had a plan before the foundations of the earth. I thank the Lord that he is that planned out ahead that he had a plan B. Um, The plan of redemption was in play long before we even needed it. But it took like thousands of years to accomplish. And I was thinking about that, like why did it take so long to get Jesus into the earth? And, you know, I'm not a scholar, but I believe that it took generations of people, they had to freely choose to participate in God's great plan for redemption, to get Jesus into the earth. And you see time and time again in the Old Testament where people screw up. And then they come back to God, and then they screw up, and they come back to God. I think, I can't remember who said it, but like the whole journey that took them 40 years in the wilderness was really only supposed to take like a few weeks. Um, but because they kept making mistakes and wandering aimlessly, it took them 40 years. And so um, it took a long time for Jesus to get in the earth. But thank God he came, and thank God for his blood, right? So I don't have time to really get into 
all of the facets of redemption today, but my goal is to help you understand some basic principles. Like I said, if you don't understand what it is, you're going to live far below what Jesus paid for you, right? And uh, if we don't know the value of something, we will inevitably treat that thing far less than what it's worth. And redemption was, the, the highest price was paid. It was the price of his own life. And if we don't understand the value it, by default, we will devalue it with our thoughts and our actions. And we don't want to do that. So some good questions to ask ourselves this morning is, what is redemption, right? What is it? What are we redeemed uh, from? And what are we redeemed Two, all things I endeavor to uh, answer this morning. So the word redeem in the American Heritage Dictionary means this, to recover ownership of something by paying a specified sum. To recover ownership of something by paying a specified sum. I'll give a story for illustration. When I was younger, my dad and I thought it would be a good idea to sell one of his guitars because he had a plethora of guitars. There was a time when you were like tripping over them in our house. My dad loved to play uh, music. He sang, he was a worship leader, and he played the guitar. And so one of his guitars, you know, we, I don't even know, like we weren't strapped for cash. I don't know why. I brought it, the idea to him, and now I'm, I'm regretting it years and years later. But um, he had a beautiful Alvarez guitar, and it had abalone inlays on the fretboard and around the sound hole, and it was, um, had a beautiful cutout, and it, it looked beautiful, it played beautiful, it sounded beautiful. And for some reason, I was like, we should sell this guitar, Dad. <laughs> and so we went to the pawn shop, and he offered a price for it. We said, yeah, that's good. And a few weeks went by, and I began to regret the decision that we made. So I went back to the pawn shop, and I was like, I'm going to buy this thing back um, with the part-time job of minimum wage um, that, I've, you know, that, I'm, that I'm working. And so I go into the pawn shop, I see the guitar hanging there, and it's priced significantly more than what we sold it to him for. And I was looking at it and I go, there's no way I can pay this, right? So if I wanted to redeem that guitar and recover ownership, right, I would have to pay the specified sum. And I ultimately decided that the price was too great to redeem. And that was like in 2007 and it's 2022. And I'm still kicking myself uh, because I let that guitar go. But that illustrates my point just a little bit. If I wanted to redeem that that guitar, I would have to pay the specified price. That price was more than I paid for it, but here's the thing about value. Value is determined and set by what someone is willing to pay for it. So even if you think something isn't worth that much, if somebody is willing to pay that much for it, guess what? That's the new value. Value and worth are always determined by what somebody is willing to pay for it. And if you know anything about the plan of redemption, the price was set at a human life and Jesus paid that price, amen? So there's a story in this book, in the blood and the glory that illustrates this point and paints a picture of redemption. I'd like to share it with you. Um, this is right out of her book, a story. It says this, a father and his small son worked together and built a toy boat. They whittled out its hull, painted it red and attached a white sail. Then they enjoyed many happy hours sailing in the river, uh, running through their village. Somehow, the father died. When the boy sailed the boat alone, it brought back good memories until one day a big wind caught the little sail and carried the boat down the river faster than the boy could run after it. Out it sailed into the sea. The boy missed his boat so much for, a long time, for the longest time that it was gone. About Thanksgiving time, he was overjoyed to see his little boat appear in the toy shop window. He ran inside and said, that's my little boat in the window. My father and I made it, and it was lost to the sea. The shop owner said, the little boat was brought in by a fisherman who found it. I will let you have it for what it cost me. The boy had no money, but he went to work. He cut wood. He sold papers. He did everything he could uh, to buy that boat back. Each day, he counted his money, and each day, he held his breath as he passed by the toy shop to see if the little bo the boat was still there. At last, on Christmas Eve, he had enough money. But had someone bought the little boat for a gift? How thankful he was to see it was still in the window. When he came out of the shop, he clasped the little boat to his chest and cried, little boat, little boat, you are twice mine. I made you, and now I bought you. It's a beautiful illustration of redemption. We are twice his, right? God made us, and God redeemed us not with 
corruptible things like silver and gold, but with precious blood, right? So I've given you the English definition of redeemed, which it was fine, it was good, but the English language is a very lazy language. Um, (laughs) It's just true. I mean, I'll still speak it, but (laughs) um, I'm switching to Greek. Um, No, but the Greek has way more depth and meaning to it. Um, So when you break things down in Hebrew and in Greek, you get more revelation. And I would encourage you when you read the, the word of God to find out what those words were translated from, either in Greek or in Hebrew, and your understanding of the word of God will be greatly broadened, okay? So there are four unique words for redeem or redeemed in the Greek language, and I'm gonna share those with you this morning. The first being the Greek word for redeem, agorozo. Um, This is the English spelling of it, but it's spelled A-G-A-R-O-Z-O. Agorozo means this, to buy in the marketplace. And more deeply um, defined, it means to buy, purchase. Um, This refers to buying and acquiring possessions as in a marketplace and, and to setting a slave free through purchase. Often to God's purchase, redemption of sinners. So this was the word that was used in the buying and selling of people in the slave market, that word agorozo. So if we turn to Revelation 5, 9, it says this, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God. That word redeemed in Revelation 5, 9 is the Greek word agorozo. You've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and you shall reign on the earth. I want you to hold on to those two words, king and priest, because we will venture into that at the very end of this. But king and priest is important for you to remember, all right? So Jesus left, and uh, he left heaven. He, he left, set aside his deity, and what did he do? He entered the marketplace, right? He entered the slave market. Not only that, but Philippians 2, 7 says that he completely emptied himself of his deity, right? He left that position with God and became fully man, and he actually became a slave himself. He came down to earth in our fallen condition so he could rescue us out of slavery. And that brings me to the second word. It's fairly similar to the first word, just with a prefix attached to it. So it's ex agarozo, all right? Ex agarozo. So ex um, just means out, right? So this word means out of the marketplace. Second word for redeem. So Romans 6, uh, 16 and 18 um, talks about um, whatever you give yourself to, you become a slave of, okay? And if you've heard me preach before, then you know where I'm going with this. I've made this analogy before, but sin is not something that you can go to and from freely, okay? Sin is not a vending machine, all right? You can't go to the sin vending machine and say, hey, how you doing today? Oh, I'm gonna partake in some gossip. Thank you so much, B7. All right, perfect. Thank you, I will come see you again when I wanna sin some more. I'm thinking some you know, lasciviousness, whatever that is. I've read about it in the Bible. I think I'm gonna get that. Um, you know what, some gossip, some hate, some lust. You know, ooh, um, I'll come back for that. You know, B7, okay, that's C9. All right, perfect. Right? No, 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 that's not how sin works. You can't go to it, partake of it, and then leave and not be affected. In all reality, the sin vending machine that I'm creating here is really the sin vending machine from hell because once you press B7, it like grows arms and it grabs you and it brings you in and you're a slave to it. You gotta live in the vending machine now, right? You're a slave to the vending machine. It reminds me of, I remember I, I liked to, I still like to kid around, but I remember convincing somebody that you could apply for a job at Redbox, and what you would do is you would sit inside the the machine and give people their DVDs, and it got really hot in there, but they paid you really good, and they gave you snacks, and they totally believed me, and they wanted to apply for a a job at Redbox, and then I had to break the news to them, but anyways, um, sin desires to have you. What did God tell Cain when he was conspiring to kill his brother, right? He said, if you don't do what is right, sin is lying at the door. It's waiting. And what else does he say? Its desire is to have you. Sin's desire is to have you and make you a slave. Excuse me. To make you a slave, right? Whatever you give yourself to, 
you become a slave of, right? So let's say that you have the ability to maybe never commit a certain sin ever again in your life. You're still not free from the consequences of that original sin, right? Which is separation from God. That's what we call spiritual death, okay? But Jesus entered the slave market. He paid the ransom and brought us out and in to his righteousness. And a beautiful example of this is a story that we read in the Old Testament, and it's the story of Hosea and Gomer. And if you've ever read this, it's beautiful. And um, you know, it's found in the book of Hosea. I encourage you to read it. I'm not gonna give you the full version. I'm gonna give you the highlights. I'm gonna give you the spark notes. I don't know if anybody remembers spark notes, but that got me through high school and college. I'm like, spark notes, yes. Spark notes. So what happened was Israel was committing adultery against God. They were making false gods, learning about different false gods and serving them, giving sacrifices to them, worshiping them instead of the one true God. And um, God had a problem with that, obviously, right? So what he did is he actually sends uh, Hosea, who's a prophet, and he goes, I want you to go and marry a prostitute, (laughs) And he goes, this is going to be an illustration of what Israel is doing to me. Um, So he goes and tells him, he goes, you know, you need to go find this prostitute and you need to marry her. So Hosea goes into the slave market because if, uh, uh, like, the prostitutes, you know, they are somebody else's property. So they belong to, like, a procurer and that person sells them to other people. So he went into the slave market and bought her out, right, and married her. Um, according to what God told them to do. And so actually things were going quite swimmingly for a while. They were living the Israeli dream, which might be similar to the American dream. So let's just say they had the nice house with the white picket fence. They had 2.5 kids. I don't know how that works, but they also had a dog, okay? Um, They were living the dream. They had themselves a bunch of scrumbles. They were loving it, okay? So Things, you know, you think, hey, this is going pretty well. But sooner, sooner or later, uh, uh, um, Gomer started to desire her old life once again, right? To the point where she actually left her husband and her kids and went back to the very thing that she was once bought out of. And we think, how stupid. But we do the same thing all the time. It just looks a little differently. God purchased us to not think the way that we still continue to think and not do the things that we still continue to do. We go back to old habits and, and we go back to unforgiveness and, and being offended at people. It's just different. We, we build false idols out of little things. We build false idols out of money. We build false idols out of this realm of comfortability, right? That can be an idol, being comfortable, you know what, it's easy. I'm gonna take the easy way out. You know what, this doesn't require faith. All I gotta do is this, and it's easy, right? That can become an idol, right? So anyways, she is back into the slave market. And if I was Hosea, I would probably tell God, you know what, God, I did what you asked me. I married a prostitute, and guess what? She acted like a prostitute. Couldn't say I saw that coming, right? Can't say I didn't see that coming. God, just let me lick my wounds and move on with my life that was embarrassing, and you literally made me an open display for all of Israel, and now my wife's being a harlot once again. So just let me lick my wounds and move on. That's probably what I would have said, right? So this is what God tells Hosea in chapter three. He says, Hosea, go and love again. That's what it literally says, go and love again. Go find her and marry her again. This was showing God's heart for Israel. Even though they kept turning from him, he still loved them. And he didn't just say, hey, Hosea, try and love her. Right? No, he says, love her like I love the people of Israel. Even though they depart from me, I still love them fiercely. That is the unconditional love of God on display, Right? The unconditional love of God. We love to say like, ooh, I want to love unconditionally. That literally means you can't have conditions attached to loving someone. And we always do. It's the fine print. Anytime we're engaged in any type of relationship with somebody, there's always fine print. Right? I'm in it for the long haul. Unless this, 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 and this, this, and this isn't met. No, no. Unconditional love literally means you do not have any conditions. So no matter how, how wrong that person is, how, how much they hurt you, You love them. That's what God did. That's what Hosea did with Gomer. 
So Hosea has to go back to where the prostitutes are. He has to go back to the slave market, right? Again, she isn't a free woman. So Hosea goes into the slave market, that's that word agarozo, and purchases her out of slavery. That's the word ex agarozo, and he makes her his wife once again. Man, beautiful depiction. Read the full story in Hosea. It'll blow you away. I love that story. So in Matthew chapter 9, fast forward New Testament, Jesus has this funny little habit of eating with people that he's not supposed to be eating with, right? He eats with sinners and tax collectors, and it is like ticking off the Pharisees and the religious people of the day because they're so caught up in outward tradition and outward expression, but their heart was completely in the wrong place. And Jesus saw them for who they really are. There's times in the Bible where it says that Jesus perceived their thoughts. I think Jesus could always perceive what these Pharisees were all about. Right? He even called them whitewashed tombs. You look pretty on the outside, on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. Right? So they're giving him a hard time because he's eating at a certain tax collector's house. And he finally has enough. And then Jesus does what I would call a mic drop moment. Right? If he had a mic like this, it would be on the floor. And everybody would just be like, are you kidding me? Did he just say that? So they're harassing him. And he finally says this in Matthew chapter 9, verse 12. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. He says, go and figure this out, right? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, right? In fact, that word mercy is from an emphatic position, right? Mercy I desire, and the verb can be translated more accurately, mercy I delight in. That was a big statement, and it meant a lot from Jesus. And what he was actually doing is he was quoting the book of Hosea, because that's what God was saying to Israel. He, and in the book of Isaiah, he says, I require mercy, not sacrifice. And if you read the next line down, he says, and the knowledge of God over burnt offerings. What is he saying? I don't care about all of the stuff that you're doing on the outside to make you think, right, that you're pleasing me. I actually care about intimacy and knowing you personally and you knowing me personally. I don't care that you do all the burnt offerings and all the sacrifices and you say all the right things and you wear the right clothes and you're in the right place. If your heart's not in it, God has, wants nothing to do with it. He says, I require mercy and not sacrifice, right? He was quoting the book of Hosea, and Jesus came, and this is so beautiful, Jesus came to seek out the gomers, the lowest of the low, and show mercy. That was us. We were the outcasts. We were the sinners. We were the lowest of the low. We were the ones who were selling ourselves into slavery by the decisions that we made. But he came to seek and save the lost. Here's something that's cool. The word Hosea means salvation. The word Gomer means completion. And what did Jesus say? His final words on the cross. It is finished. Redemption is beautiful. So the third Greek word for redeemed is the word lutrosis. L-U-T-R-O-S-I-S. -S. That's the English spelling. Lutrosis, which means a ransoming. It comes from the root word lutro, which means to pay the full ransom price. Hebrews 9.12 says this, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption or eternal lutrosis, right? You see, before Jesus, humanity could not pay the full ransom price of their sin, Right? That's why they could only do things once a year. They would go and they would, the priest would, would uh, kill an innocent animal and put that as, an, as, a, as a sacrifice to atone for their sins for one year. Right? But then Jesus came and what did he do? Right? He entered the holy place. Right? We read this in Hebrews. He entered in and he said, guess what? I'm only doing this one time. Okay? 
one is enough. This isn't a 70s sitcom. This isn't eight is enough. One is enough. Somebody got my joke. Nobody got it at the first service. Eight is, eight is <laughs> that's a funny show. Um, he said one is enough, and he shed his blood upon the mercy seat, and he obtained eternal redemption for all of us, right? The fourth Greek word is this, apolutrosis. Same word, but with another prefix. Apo meaning from, right? So repurchasing or re-winning back what was previously forfeited, right? Ephesians 1.7 uses this word. In him we have redemption, apolutrosis, through his blood and the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So we gotta think, what was previously forfeited? You gotta go all the way back to the Garden of, uh, of Eden. Adam and Eve forfeited their intimate relationship and fellowship with their, with their heavenly father. That's what they forfeited, right? So the blood of Jesus redeemed us and restored us back to our original state, back to communion, back to fellowship with God, all right? Galatians 4, 7 says this, therefore you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So those are the four Greek words for redeem, and I hope that they're helping you, you know, paint a picture of the fullness of redemption, right? Jesus entered into the slave market, right? He became a slave himself. He paid the full ransom, and then he rescued us out of slavery and restored us back into our original state. So we just defined redemption. Now I want to go briefly into the threefold nature of redemption. What are we redeemed from? What are we redeemed to? And the promises that are attached to it. So number one, real quick, what are we redeemed from? All of this can be found in Galatians chapter 3. Um, verses 13 and 14. It says this, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. So there's number one. What are we redeemed from? The curse of the law. That being found in Deuteronomy. It's the consequences of sin, right? Death and sickness. Um, and the list goes on. You can read all of it, right? So now let's keep reading in Galatians chapter three. It says, uh, he became, or Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. That's number two. What are we redeemed to? The blessing of Abraham, right? The blessing of Abraham. So good question, good follow-up question. What's, the, what's the Abraham's blessing? Well, I'm glad you asked, okay? I'm gonna tell you. Here it is, Genesis 12, starting in verse one. This is God, he says, now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is Abraham's blessing and that is promised to us. New Testament, he's saying, to the Gentiles, those are, that's people who aren't Jews, okay? We get that blessing. So let's paint that into a New Testament narrative here, right? What is God saying? This is what he's saying. He will lead us into a wide place, right? He told Abram, he says, you're gonna leave your comfort zone, right? You're gonna leave what's comfortable to you, your, your father's house, right? And you're gonna go to a new land, but it's a land that I have already prepared for you, right? He's going to lead you into a new place, into a wide place. What's he gonna do next? He's gonna increase your influence. Then he's gonna bless you to a point that your name is well known because blessing is attached to it, right? As Christians, you should be walking around in the blessing of God that people take notice. And they don't take notice and the reason why you're blessed is not so you can walk around wearing all this nice jewelry, right? And driving the nicest cars to show off. No, 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 no. God blesses you simply as a vessel, as a conduit to get blessing to other people. Listen, God has to work through somebody, might as well be through you, right? And this whole idea of giving to get a blessing is nonsense, and I'll tell you why, okay? We always look at this Old Testament scripture of Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek, right? But here's the deal. Abraham had already won the battle. He already had all the riches and all the spoils. He had the blessing already. Then he paid tithes. Why was he doing that? Not to get more blessed, 
but to acknowledge covenant and acknowledge that God is his source. I'm here to tell you this morning, every time you give, if your heart is to be blessed, is to get blessing, you have the wrong heart. And that's why it's probably not working for you. You give not to get anything. You give because you're constantly acknowledging that God is your source. Come on. And New Testament giving looks a lot different. You know, in the Old Testament, they had the law of tithing, right? And we still love to tithe today, and I think there's a lot of importance in tithing. But we are required to do two things in the New Testament. Give cheerfully and give sacrificially. And I'll tell you what, sacrificially usually is a lot more than 10% for me. That's all I'll say. Christ has redeemed us so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That's the third fold nature of, the, of uh, redemption. So um, Abraham didn't earn the promise, right? He, he received the promise through faith, right? And it works the same way with us. We can try and work really, really hard, but that's never gonna earn anything, right? Not by works, lest any man should boast, right? We receive it by faith. We receive it by faith. All right. So, are you guys getting anything? I'm gonna take a drink of water. Sorry, I got really intense there for a second. I'm sorry. Okay. So, Moving on, your quality of life is directly tied to your revelation of redemption. So scientists conducted a study, it was a while ago, I watched a video on it, it looks like 60s, 70s maybe, doesn't really matter, but they conducted this study where they took thousands of fleas, because fleas have this ability to jump abnormally high, that's kind of why we hate them so much, they're in places they're not supposed to be, right, you're like, how did that flea get there, right, they're on your dog, they just suck, all right, so they took a thou like thousands of fleas and they put them in this jar with an open lid, and you probably guess what happens next, they're all just jumping out of this jar, just, it's, they're making a mess, right, so what they do is they put a lid on the jar, and for a while these fleas are just jumping straight into the lid, just banging right into the lid, boom, 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 but after a few days, what the fleas did is they adjusted the height of their jump to the level of the lid, right? Because they were tired of hitting the lid so much. Um, so what the scientists did is then they uh, took the lid off and none of the fleas jumped out, even though there was no barrier there anymore because they were so conditioned to only jump to the height where they wouldn't get hurt, right? So where they would even have offspring in the same jar and the offspring of the fleas would only jump as high as they saw their parents jumping, right? <laughs> thinking like a family of fleas, right? And so I was thinking about that, and you know, we talk about like generational curses. And what if like a generational curse was only you believing a lie over something that isn't there, right? The lid, in all reality, the, the lid was off. But even the offspring of these fleas were continuing to jump at that height because that's what daddy did, right? And that's what granddaddy did. And that's what great-granddaddy did, right? So we think there's, you know, we're the way that we are because, well, that's how this person did it. That's how this person did it. That's how this person did it, right? The way we break generational cur curses is to get the mind of Christ and to understand that those are lies in the first place. That if you've given your life to Jesus, guess what? The lid has been removed, and you're living in a lie right now, and God wants you to live outside of the jar. Come on. I'm not calling you a flea, but God wants us to live outside or beyond the jar. And the enemy is trying to deceive us into living in the jar even though we're free, right? Because in all reality, the devil knows way more about redemption and what happened on the cross than most of believers, and that's a problem because he will use your ignorance against you, right? So from time to time, me and my wife like to watch, we'll, sometimes we'll binge watch shows and we used to watch a show, uh, it was all about lawyers and the legal system and we would watch it. And I was fascinated because there was a lot of parallels that we can draw um, uh, in our spiritual life, okay? Um, Revelation 12.10 says that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. And that word accuser in the Greek is the word kategoros, which is where we get the word prosecutor from. So the devil is the prosecutor 
of the brethren, right? There's a lot of legal terms in the Bible, okay? Life, in a spiritual sense, is a series of courtroom experiences for you and me on a daily basis. Every single day, the prosecutor is bringing up accusations against God's children in the court of law. And we have to learn how to properly defend ourselves. Amen? So, I'm going to... I'm going to say this real quick and then we'll move on. Um, so, you've seen a movie, you know, you've probably seen a movie once or twice where, you know, there's a courtroom and uh, there's, a, there's a, you know, a decision that needs to be made. You see the jury, you see the judge, everyone, and you're waiting for the verdict, right? The head juror comes out, <clears throat> clears his throat. You're like, what's going to happen, right? If he, if he calls him guilty, then he's going to have to serve the sentence. If he's innocent, then he'd get to go, you know, a free man. You're wondering what happens. Um, and... He'll, he'll be condemned for that crime. And so what happens in our spiritual lives is that the devil is trying to condemn us. And that word condemn means two things. The word condemn means sentenced to punishment. And number two, it means declared unfit for use. Such, like, that's so nasty. That's totally like the devil. To convince you that you are unfit for use. To convince you that you're not worthy and you're not good enough. What a lie, Right? You are good enough, you are worthy, and Jesus proved it and paid for it over 2,000 years ago. So let's look at this courtroom setting for a second. There's a lot of things, a lot of people in the courtroom, they all do and mean different things. I'm just gonna paint a few. First, when you go into the courtroom, you see the judge, right? This is the person who oversees the court proceedings. They execute the law and issue the sentence of those deemed guilty and you know, if it's a bench trial, then they actually give the verdict. Usually, the jury gives the verdict, but sometimes there's a bench trial, and that's when the judge actually gives the verdict. On the other side of the courtroom, you see the prosecutor. This person's job is to present a criminal case before the judge against an individual accused of breaking the law. On the other side is the defendant. This is the one being accused of the crime. And, and you also see their defense attorney, right? The attorney's job is to be an advocate for the accused and to plead on their behalf, right? Then you have the witness stand. Witnesses on both sides are called to testify and give details, right? To tell what they know about the situation, right? So again, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He's the prosecutor. So he gives his opening statement, right? And it lasts for hours because he's literally saying every single thing that you've ever done wrong. That's how the devil works. He brings up things from like 30 years ago. You're like, whoa, where'd that come from, <laughs> right? And he, and, he, and he haunts you with those thoughts. And he brings all that stuff up and you're sitting there in the court and you're like, oh man, like, I actually did do all that stuff. I'm screwed, right? And then you look over at your defense attorney and he whispers in your ear and you go, I'd like to call on a witness, okay? I'm gonna call a witness to take the stand. They go, yeah, you can do that. I call upon the blood of Jesus, so the blood of Jesus takes the stand, right? 1 John 5, 8 says that the blood is a witness and witnesses are expected to speak and thank God the blood of Jesus has something to say. He has something to say. So if you read in Hebrews 12, 24, it says, and we have come to Jesus who established a new covenant with his blood sprinkled upon the mercy seat, blood that continues to speak from heaven, forgiveness, a better message than Abel's blood that cries from the earth, justice. So what does the blood of Jesus testify to? It testifies and speaks of forgiveness. Come on. That's why it's important to know the, what, what legally is yours, okay? The blood of Jesus testifies of forgiveness. And in that same book of Hebrews, it says that the blood of Jesus also cleanses your conscience. Come on. Don't ever let the enemy try and fool you into being condemned and unfit for use because the blood of Jesus will take the stand and testify of forgiveness. Amen? So the prosecutor, he might bring up even more stuff. It's like round two, right? Here's the thing. I'm gonna call another witness up to the stand. Yes, it's the same witness. I'm allowed to do that, okay? The blood of Jesus takes the stand once again and dismantles and destroys the accusations of the devil, Right? Now it's time for closing statements. Right? The final, like the last hurrah, like if you're going to get them, you're going to get them with this. Right? 
the only thing is that the prosecutor just repeats himself because he has nothing new. So he just brings up the same old things over and over and over and over again, right? And your defense attorney looks at you and says, listen, I got this, all right? Here's a news flash. Your defense attorney is Jesus, all right? If you were wondering who it was. Your defense attorney is Jesus. He says, I'm the best closer that there ever was. Let me do this. He goes, all right, here's the deal. Nice little spiel you had there. Um, and yeah, Jonathan did do all that stuff, right? And technically, he is guilty. There's just one problem. I stood on trial for Jonathan over 2,000 years ago, and if memory recalls me correctly, I already served the sentence for him. And here's the, here's the good news. Jesus or I have declared Jesus as Lord, so technically I'm one with him. And if he paid the price, then I'm a free man. Come on, case closed. Hallelujah. Right? So the decision is unanimous, right? The judge pounds the gavel, declares you a free man, and you have been acquitted. Or that word acquitted means justified, right? You see, redemption made it literally impossible for you to lose in this spiritual courtroom setting ever again, right? But we have to know what redemption is, what it entails, and what the blood of Jesus purchased for us, okay? So not only does the blood of Jesus testify for us, but Jesus himself is our advocate and our defense attorney. And you wanna know something else? Jesus is actually the judge as well. He's all of them. <laughs> That's good news. John 5, 20, uh, 5 uh, verse 22 says that the Father has assigned all judgment to the son. So he's not only defense attorney, but he's also judge, right? And I told you at the very beginning to remember this, king and priest. Jesus is your king. What was the king's job? The king's job was to execute the law. The priest's job was to be an advocate between God and man. Jesus is now both. But to understand how this came to be, we have to go way, way back in time. Remember that name I said earlier? Melchizedek, the most mysterious man in the Bible. Nobody really knows who he is or what he was around for, but the Bible says that he's like the greatest that ever lived besides Jesus, right? We'll call him Mysterious Mel, okay? Mysterious Mel. This is where it gets really interesting. If you give me about eight more minutes, I promise it'll be worth your while. So Jesus is now king and priest. But according to Mosaic law back in the day when Jesus was around, you could not be king and priest at the same time. Here's why. They came from two completely different lineages, right? The priesthood, I'm going to get really nerdy. I'm sorry. The priesthood came from the house of Aaron. That was the tribe of Levi, okay? There's 12 tribes of Israel. The royal line came from the house of David. That was the tribe of Judah, okay? Completely separate. You were not allowed under Mosaic law to have a king and a priest be the same person. But Melchizedek, mysterious Mel, right? He lived before the Mosaic law. Those rules did not apply to him. Okay, let's read here. Genesis 14, 18 says this. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, he was the priest of God Most High. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Melchizedek, it just literally just said that he was king and priest, right? He lived before the law. He didn't have to submit to any of those laws. So he was king of Salem. Salem later referred to as Jerusalem, okay? And priest. Break down his name, Melchizedek, two root words in the Hebrew. Melchi, which comes from the, from the Hebrew word melech, which means king, and the second word, zedek, which means righteousness. You put those two things together, you literally have king priest or king of righteousness. That's what his name actually means, right? So it was prophesied in Psalm 110 that the Messiah would bring and restore the priesthood back, right? So if Jesus was supposed to do that, here's, here's, here's where it all, it, it kind of trips up. Jesus was from the house of, of David, okay, from the tribe of Judah. He was not from the house of Aaron. So how was he supposed to be king and priest? It does, it's not gonna work, right? Well, here's where it gets even more interesting, okay? John the Baptist, you guys know who John the Baptist is. If you study out who John the Baptist is, John the Baptist is from the house of Aaron. 
the tribe of Levi. That's the priesthood, okay? Study it out even farther. John the Baptist's dad is Zechariah. Zechariah was the high priest of Israel, okay, until he died. John the Baptist was the rightful high priest of Israel. So Jesus comes to be baptized him, baptized by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist wants Jesus to wash him. He goes, dude, you should be washing me. He goes, no, no, no. This needs to be done in order to fulfill all righteousness, right? Hebrew word for righteousness being zedek, in order to fulfill the order of Melchizedek. So what happened at the River Jordan was a divine transfer of the priesthood back onto the lineage of David. So Jesus now can become king and priest. What was the priest's job? The priest's job was to identify the spotless lamb. What did he say when he saw Jesus from far off? I believe it's in Matthew chapter nine. Um, or Matthew, no, sorry, John nine. John one nine, it says, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He just identified the lamb. And in the house of Aaron, to prepare the next priest for ministry, what they would do is they would wash them, put holy garments on them, and anoint them with oil. So what did he do? He baptized him. It was a ceremonial washing, and he came up, and what happened? The Spirit of God came and rested upon Jesus and anointed him, restored the order of Melchizedek, and Jesus now rightfully could be king and priest, judge and defense attorney. You want to know why there's no condemnation in Christ? because he's both king and priest, judge and defense. The case is closed. Amen? Why don't you stand up with me? Thank you, Lord Jesus. Oh, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are our king and our priest, our judge and our defense. You fight for us, and there is no condemnation, not, no uh, being condemned, no being unfit for use, believing the lie of the enemy because... You have purchased our redemption through your blood. I thank you that you went into the marketplace. You bought us back and restored us into union. Father God, I pray that everybody who listened this morning will have a deeper and greater understanding of what redemption is, the price that was paid, and how they can walk, walk out their life to the fullest, knowing about redemption even more so now. We praise you, we thank you, we honor you for who you are. King and priest, Jesus, we love you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Again, why don't you pick up this book? Um, I don't think it's in our bookstore, but you can find it pretty much anywhere books are sold, The Blood and the Glory. And come back tonight, 6 p.m., for Tony Haskell. It's going to be an awesome word. Why don't you say this as we go? What God did in Christ Jesus far exceeds.